And I think it's such a beautiful, like growth oriented mindset and really it takes the locus of control from outside back inside, like gives you a sense of agency over your life. I can't remember the exact phrase, but it was something like, if not now, when, and if not you, who? And, and I'm sitting there like in my early twenties just going, yeah, like, Someone's got to be successful. Someone's got to do inspiring things. Why the heck can't that be me? Welcome to Mike Drop, the podcast for professional speakers. We cover the ins and outs of the business, helping you deliver more impact on bigger stages at higher fees. You'll gain an inside edge through intimate conversations with the world's most successful keynote speakers. Mic Drop is brought to you by eSpeakers. I'm your host, Josh Linkner. Get ready for some inspiring Mic Drop moments together. Today's show is sponsored by Three Ring Circus, the industry's top training and development program for professional speakers. They've helped hundreds of speakers launch or scale their speaking business, earning tens of millions in speaking fees, landing bureau representation, securing book deals, and rising to the top of the field. If you're looking to take your speaking business to the next level, they'll simply help you get there faster. To learn more and schedule a free 30-minute consultation, visit 3ringcircus.com forward slash mic drop. That's three, the number three, ringcircus.com forward slash mic drop. Mic drop is produced and presented by eSpeakers. If you want more audiences and organizations to be moved and changed by your message, you owe it to yourself to find out why thousands of top experts use eSpeakers to manage and grow their business. When you use eSpeakers, you'll feel confident about your business, package yourself up for success, and be able to focus on what matters most to you and your business. For more information and a free 30-day trial, visit eSpeakers.com forward slash mic drop. That's eSpeakers.com forward slash mic drop. On today's show, I sit down with one of the most prolific speakers in the business, Peter Sheehan. Peter has delivered over 3,000 keynotes and earned over $30 million in speaking fees over the last 20 years. He's also built and sold two businesses, written seven books, and is one of the most outspoken thought leaders on leading through change, growth strategy, and navigating disruption. In my conversation with Peter, he drops many powerful insights including the monumental decision that led to his long-term success in the speaking industry. How to find your market positioning sweet spot, the critical question to ask yourself that will change everything. He covers the unconventional step that he took to cut through the noise and launch into the market. He shares the secret he told Brene Brown in a green room that helped launch her explosive speaking career. And also what he refers to as the intoxicating delusion of the speaking business. Peter also shares some practical advice on sustainability in the speaking industry, how to win for the long term, and when is the right time to raise your fee and by how much, plus the big mistake speakers make when raising their fee. It's coming to you all from one of the best in the business, Peter Sheehan. Josh, if I was half the man you said I was in that introduction, I'd be proud of myself. 
<laughs> Indeed. Well, you are you're more more like two X the man, and uh, it's such a pleasure to sit down with you and chat. Um, listen, you're you're a legend in the industry. Everybody knows of you. Everybody respects you. But if you could start by taking us back, how did you get into this crazy business in the first place? Oh wow! I, I hate to admit how long ago that might have been, but it's a good solid twenty years now. I was running a pub in Sydney. And if you know anything about the hospitality industry in Australia, the only way to make any money is through slot machines. And I decided, you know, getting people addicted to gambling was not my future, right? And I'd begun a, like a really curious search for what I might want to do next. And as part of that search, I went to a, a like the, the, the touring American superstar, like speaker event. It was like Tom Hopkins, Zig Ziglar and Jim Rohn. And I paid 99 bucks for a ticket, Josh, sitting behind a concrete pylon, because it's about all I could afford at the time. So I'm sort of doing the whole conference, like leaning to my left and looking around this concrete pylon. And an hour and a half with Jim Rohn changed my life. And I know I'm not the only speaker that identifies him as the, the person that triggered them, but it really, it fundamentally changed my experience of my own life. And it happened in an hour and a half. And I decided, hey, that's it. Like, wouldn't it be amazing to be able to create catalytic experiences that nudge people in a different direction in their life? And why wouldn't I do that in schools? I'd done incredibly well at school. I had a lot of success running bars and restaurants straight out of school. So I had a pretty good story to tell. And I thought it would be great to learn what I learned from Jim Rohn that day, but when I was 16. And so I decided I would go into high schools and help kids make the transition from school to work. So that's what I did. Do you have, I want to learn more about your, your journey, of course, but real quickly, do you remember anything that Jim said? I mean, the thing that's so cool for a speaker is you could say a phrase, a nugget that lasts with somebody for 30 years and, and in your case, changed the trajectory of your life and career. What, what was it? How did it make you feel? Was there something, a particular piece of content that just stuck with you? Yeah, it was three. Right. One was if your life's worth living, it's worth recording. And I know, you know, most of us would probably give Tony Robbins credit for saying that, but Ryan was the originator of that, not the concept, but certainly that line. And so I started keeping a journal, man, and it just changed the level of self-reflection and living more consciously would be one. The second thing was he said, don't wish life were easier, wish you were better. And I think it's such a beautiful, like growth oriented mindset and really it takes the locus of control from outside back inside, like gives you a sense of agency over your life. I can't remember the exact phrase, but it was something like, if not now, when, and if not you, who? And, and I'm sitting there like in my early 20s just going, yeah, like someone's got to be successful. Someone's got to do inspiring things. Why the heck can't that be me? And so they were the three things. And it's, a, it's such a great example because it's one of the skill sets of a great presenter is the ability to create sticky declarations that last long after you get off the platform. I mean, it just just want to acknowledge what a beautiful thing that, you know, you, here you are, you recognize this and that that's the business we're in. We're, we deal in aha moments. And and for all of us, regardless of where we are in our in our career trajectory, what, that that's the real gift of being on stage. It's not it's not money or accolades. It's really this act of service and act of giving. And, and you've been a terrific example of that. So so moving forward, how did you go? You know, there, there may be a lot of people that have gone into a school and given a, a keynote for, for $30 and not so many that have taken that <laughs> and built the, the you know incredible business that you have. How did you go from speaking in schools in Australia to being on the biggest stages in the world? Yeah, well, for one, like at my peak in schools, I was doing about 485 speeches a year. So you want to talk about compressing the learning curve from a stage mechanics perspective. Um, having that level of volume and that many repetitions is a pretty good way to not be worried about what you're going to say and instead be worried about how you architect the experience, create a setting to lead an audience in a new direction. And so 
I, I had this foundation of, of skills that when I hit the corporate setting, and I'll explain how I did that in a second, um, I kind of blew, I, I, I don't want to sound arrogant when I say this, but I really did set a new standard for the level of engagement possible in an adult learning environment, right? But I was working with you know 300,000 millennials, Gen Y kids a year. And I remember going to an early mentor, a guy called Ron Tacky, who ran a speakers bureau in Australia, unfortunately passed away since, and going, all right, I'm ready to go tell IBM what to do. And he said, no offense, Pete, IBM's not going to listen to what you say. What's your actual expertise? What do you know more about in the world than anybody else? And I'm like, well, I don't know if you know this, but this whole new generation's coming up and they've got totally different expectations, blah, 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 blah. It's like, that's your sweet spot. And by the way, no one had written on that topic. I essentially wrote the first book in the world with a focus on organizations and brand and culture, like really you know, practical commercial application on the topic of Gen Y, AKA usually in the US these days, probably called the millennials. And you know, three months I went from being a full-time speaker in schools to a full-time speaker um, in a corporate environment. I was the only game in town. I was in the boardrooms of News Corporation. I'm working for Google, for Cisco, and I'm 25 years old at this point. And so, um, you know, it sounds like I got lucky and I really, you know, there was some luck in that, but there were some really specific things, Josh, I did around my positioning and around choosing to be narrow in that topic so I could get cut through rather than being generic. And so I know a lot of speakers are listening to this. Let me, can I, do you mind if I just break it down a little bit and make that Please, like, super great. applicable? Um, my publisher wanted me to write about all four generations. And I was like, no, firstly, I'm only an expert in one of them, not all four of them. And two, that's kind of a topic that people are already talking about. Someone wrote a book called Gen X. Douglas Copeland wrote a journal on that, uh, a fiction book about that. There were people talking about the boomers. I'm like, this is the, the, I want to be a narrow wedge to get cut through in the market. Now, I got advice from other speakers going, well, you don't want to be too narrow because you'd like to be considered for every possible topic. And I'm like, sure, but right now, no one knows who the heck I am. And so right now, I need to cut through that mental barrier, you know, differentiate my signal from the noise that's in the market and get known for something. And, and I did that really aggressively and in a really narrow way. And then once I had momentum, I quickly repositioned my brand, both because that's what the market was needing and because I wanted to reposition it, to realize that it wasn't about young people. It was this bigger concept of, of transformation and, well, more disruption in those days, this bigger issue around digital disruption, new business models that were coming from there. And so I, I was narrow early and then I broadened out. And actually, strangely enough, I've narrowed further again at this stage in my career. But um, yeah, I'm, happy to, I'm happy to unpack and, and unstitch some of that more if you like. Well, I think you know a couple of things I heard loud and clear is that you developed unique and compelling expertise that you were the best in the world at. You went narrow instead of broad, and over time you were able to broaden the aperture. But but that was the wedge that got you in the door and got you on the stages and and got you there quickly. Um, I have a question for you back to those early days. So you had a, a wonderfully. Uh, incredible best-selling book in Australia. You became, you were on television shows, so you got a lot of, of high visibility. What advice do you give to the speaker today that takes the same route with respect to being narrow and focused, takes, you know, I've got, I've got deep expertise, my stage skills are good, but I haven't had that big, bright spotlight shined upon me. How do I get out there without such a big, you know, sort of high visibility blast? Yeah, I'd say two things. I'd say, number one, the single most important thing a speaker can have is a great speech. 
And if you're not getting three offers every time you do a presentation, your speech isn't as good as it could be right now. Like literally the most beautiful thing about this business is when you crush it, it becomes a self-perpetuating machine. As long as you remain relevant and you don't do anything to like upset people in the distribution channel along the way, right? So number one is, you know, I just call it hitting the brick wall, like doing the work, doing the repetitions, even if you have to do it in your spare bedroom on a Saturday morning. Because if you don't get up and make people laugh and deliver real content and, and actually move an audience, then and, and then, then you're not really, you're not gonna get momentum, you're not gonna break through. I'd say the second thing is, um, people think they're targeted, but they're not necessarily. They like, you know, they're still appealing to a fairly generic space and a space that sometimes they don't really have a deep expertise in. Like that book I wrote, Josh, it was like, coming from deep interaction of surveys of like hundreds of thousands of the kids. Like it was, it, it had credibility, it had weight. And so um, have a great speech, but damn, have great content too. And by great content, I just mean funny stories. I mean like, do you actually deliver insights that shift the way people experience the world? And let me give you two examples from, from my, my own career, right? I'm sorry, the friends I've met along my career. So I remember sitting in a, in a green room with Brene Brown 12, you know, probably 15 years ago right now. And it was like the first speech she'd ever done to an executive audience. And by the way, if you've read any of Brene's books, their opening chapter in Daring, Daring Greatly and um, Daring, Dare to Lead, I think is the most recent one. That opening story about the Aussie guy called Pete, that's a story about this interaction in the green room. You know what, it's just a side note, Josh. I get more fan mail for being in Brene Brown's books than I have ever gotten for anything I've ever written in my life. It's a rather depressing reality, right? But when she hit that stage, she had 20 years of like truly wrestling with the complexity of a, of, of a, of a deeply um, uh, challenging thing to understand, shame, vulnerability, the role it plays in behavior. So when she started delivering insights, it was like she was dropping bombs. They were so elegant. They were simple, but not simplistic. Does that make sense? And as a result of that, it was sticky. As a result of that, people couldn't get enough. And now she's a... Brene's got like Netflix specials and stuff now. I remember how perfectly she had done the work to have genuine insight. And so I think if you're not getting the cut through, if you're not getting the momentum you're talking about, you're either not nailing it on the platform or you haven't really got to a level of insight that truly moves people. Yeah, you're, you're spot on, and especially on depth. I mean, a lot of early speakers, they have uh, something to say that that perhaps is a little generic and, and it's, it's important to them. It's not a bad message, but you know, working hard or something is not a new message. It's not a message that's going to cut through. It's not contrarian. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a, revealing a surprising truth. It's respouting a, a cliche. And therefore, you know, you hit a floor. And so I think in your case, you really busted through because you had something to say. And of course you delivered in a, in a beautiful fashion. So I, I don't want to go through your career sequentially because we, we don't have enough hours in a day because you've been such a, such a legend, but I did want to ask you a question about that. So there are people that have, have, have hit the scene hard. Maybe they were on the today show. Maybe there was a feature of them in a movie or whatever, big book. And and then they fizzle out. So you and I have spent a lot of time talking about what does it take to be uh, a journeyman or a journeywoman in this business, somebody who can stand the test of time. So what do you think are the differences when you see someone that has been able to sustain their career versus has a, has a quick shot up and a quick fall down? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think number one is don't, you don't have to rush 
the next thing. Meaning like if you've gotten breakthrough and you've got some momentum, you, you, you're going to last, it's got 24, 30, 36 months in it usually in my experience, right? Unless you're a Super Bowl champion and, you're, and people only care about that for a year or something, right? And so I think sometimes we rush to follow up our breakthrough album with a really crappy album. I'm giving like a music metaphor, right? Or we follow our first book with a second book that's just not that good, you know? And so take your time. Like you now have a, you now have a different platform. You don't have to hustle and be as desperate as you were before, but you do have to be as good, if not better, right? And so I think firstly, being really thoughtful about that. Two, asking the question, where is the market going next, okay? So let me give you a trajectory of my my positioning as a brand, right? So firstly, I started in schools as a guy that helped students transition from school to work. Then I wrote a book on those kids I was helping transition that, you know, I put a label on, a generation, and that became a pretty popular, still to this day, I go to conferences and people are delivering on that and sometimes still quoting stuff from my book 15, 16 years ago, right? But I very quickly realized that I had two paths from there. Path one was I could get deep into the HR, training, learning, and development world, which is not where I wanted to be, or deep into the strategy leadership world, which is where I did want to be, mostly because the speaking fees are higher on the latter than they are on the former. And I made that as a very intentional choice, right? And I was like, well, what's coming next? What's coming next is a realization that this is not a millennial thing. It's not a Gen Y thing. This is a business disruption thing, and it's happening across multiple industries. It's going to be viral up the generations, and the big issue company is going to deal with is disruption. So I moved and positioned against that. I wrote Flip, which was all about counterintuitive thinking in an upside-down world. That wasn't the subtitle, but it probably should have been, something like that. Um, So I positioned against disruption. Well, there's only so long you can talk to an executive team about how disrupted they are without telling them what the heck to do about it, right? And so I reposition and move my brand towards both one, how do you find the market opportunity in the face of change and disruption? And then two, which is where I evolved to after that, how do you transform an organization fast enough to seize that opportunity? Now that's a very linear and sensible line, but notice a couple of things. At no point, Am I still rolling out a derivative of the same first piece of research or uh, the same derivative of the same idea, unless that idea has relevance for multiple decades? Mine, I, I, I want to I always be the new thing on the block a little bit. I, I want to have content that people are seeking out. And so evolving that positioning, but staying in your lane, I think is a really powerful way um, to, I mean, we could do a seven hour podcast on your question, but I'll try and keep this one short. Um, Two is protecting distribution relationships. You know, the one thing I've learned is that I would rather have a hundred agents waking up in the morning selling me than relying on the virality of something on YouTube or how many headlines I was going to draw that week. And I made that as a really intentional decision. And so I eliminated conflict in my channel. I built deep bureau relationships. I never stole a piece of work. I sent every piece of spin back. Because when you're the flavor of the month, you think you're invincible. Well, trust me, you could be the unflavor of the month just as quick as you were the flavor of the month, right? And so really thinking about what is it going to take to be high performing in this industry for 20 years, not for two? Maybe the two bits of advice I, I would give. Yeah, it's so good. And just just real quickly, you know, I think it's an important call out to note that you evolved your content and your subject matter. So you were remaining fresh and relevant, but you didn't bounce all over the place. You didn't go like, this month I'm a sales speaker. This month I'm a Y2K speaker. This month I'm a cybersecurity speaker. So you, you, you're, there was sort of a logical evolution of you as a thought leader, as opposed to you trying to be just you know adapting your complete body of work for whatever seemed to be the hot topic. 
Yeah, but it is a body of work that builds on itself, you know? Uh, let me make one more point, Josh. I didn't figure this out on my own, by the way. Um, the one, like if I look back and go, what was the, the most monumental decision I've made for like, you know, I've been very successful on the platform. I've been incredibly profitable companies around my brand and profile. But the turning point was um, actually paying for a mentorship program of people who had walked miles ahead of me in in this industry that knew the potholes, understood distribution. And like uh, Matt Church was a guy I worked with this a long time ago now. And I, like I can go back and go, I would not have been as successful as I had been if it wasn't for getting access to that community, being in those masterminds, being connected to people that that knew that stuff. Now the industry changed a lot since then, but you know, you and I, no secret to people on this uh podcast, you know, you, me, Ryan Estes, Seth Madison, and what we're doing at Three Ring Circus is an example of that. It's like, don't take nine years to figure it out on your own. How do you compress it in three? How do you go from 300 grand in fees to 3 million in fees in 36 months or 24 months, not a decade, you know? And so I really felt good about investing early on my journey, even though I didn't have the kind of cash flow to justify it at the time, um, to shortcut a bunch of this stuff. And I, I'm eternally grateful for, for the mentorship I had. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and that applies to just about any field. You know, if you want to be a master musician, you want to study with the masters. And so any way that, and I think whether it's with through mentorship or learning, any way that you can compress time, that you can get there faster, obviously as a as a monumental ROI, and and it can serve as a as an accelerant as you as you continue to build momentum and trajectory. Becoming a keynote speaker is an amazing profession. The top performers earn millions in annual income while driving massive impact on audiences around the world. But the quest to speaking glory can be a slow route with many obstacles that can knock even the best speakers out of the game. If you're serious about growing your speaking business, the seasoned pros at Three Rings Circus, they can help. From optimizing your marketing and business efforts to crafting your ideal positioning, to perfecting your expertise and stage skills. Three Ring Circus is the only speaker training and development program run by current high-level speakers at the top of their field. That's why the major bureaus like Washington Speakers Bureau, Premier Speakers, Speak Inc., Executive Speakers, Harry Walker Agency, Kepler, Gotham Artists, and GDA all endorse and participate in Three Ring Circus. From interactive boot camps to one-on-one coaching, Three Ring Circus will help you reach your full potential in the speaking biz, and they'll get there faster. For a free 30-minute consultation, visit threeringcircus.com forward slash mic drop. That's threeringcircus.com forward slash mic drop. You know what's interesting about that adult learning space is in any discipline like, say, sport, the more elite you get, the more you train, coach, develop, and get guidance, right? Somehow in our jobs, we flip that and we're like, all right, we assume that we know now know everything, right? I mean, the amount of time we spend, you and I and our other buddies and, you know, people at our level, like in the learning piece and like learning from each other, like literally yesterday, I spent an afternoon dissecting one of your keynotes, right? And giving you feedback on story and you do the same for me, right? For some reason, we think we don't have to invest in our own learning because we're adults. I mean, it's ridiculous. I, it's, it's, it, it, I, I'm, I'm glad to have had a long time commitment to my own growth and development. It's been, it's been powerful. So as mentioned, obviously, you know, you, you've ascended to, to heights that many people admire and you did a lot of things right. What did you do wrong? Ah, oh, 
okay, this is depends on your lifestyle and what you value. I, I wish at the beginning of my journey, I thought about enterprise value, not just income and profitability, right? You know, one of the challenges of being a speaker is you get kind of paid a lot of money for a day. And it can, it can be kind of like um, intoxicating, starting to go, oh, I'm worth you know, X dollars an hour or whatever, which you're really not. If you break it down and you're making a couple of million bucks a year, you're like worth 500 bucks an hour, not 30,000. And I think it becomes an intoxicating uh, delusion, to be perfectly honest. And what I worked out in my life is that actually building enterprise value and scale and, and, and being able to create value without getting out of bed in the morning, that's a really powerful path. Now, not everyone wants to go on that journey. Um, I did go on a journey and I've done it a couple of times now successfully, but man, I have left some money on the table because I didn't start earlier and I didn't kind of, that I didn't invest in my learning in that space as much as I would have liked to. And so I'd, I'd say um, I left a lot of money on the table would be number one. Um, number two, sometimes I was a little too excited to move that body of work forward that I have at times been a little bit ahead of my skis in terms of what I really knew, like whether or what I had deep credibility and experience with it. I think that's always a, a fine line to walk. And I, I just know a couple of times, you know, I, I might have been trying to bat above my average a little bit, to be honest. I've also done some really terrible speeches too, by the way, but you know, not, thankfully not too many of them. I, I highly doubt that. What you, what you think is terrible, others would think was masterful. <laughs> I don't know, um, man. But you know, you, you really bring up an interesting point, you know, punching above your weight class. I remember a conversation, you gave me great advice years ago, uh, talking about fee. And, and, and so, you know, if you are the, the hot man or woman of the, the, the hour and, and you're getting all these offers, you know, the instinct is to maximize fee right now. The risk, however, is that once the, you know, the exuberance of the moment fades, you know, can you effectively compete on objective measures with others in the same fee category? And so, you know, the conversation I recall, Peter, is I, I think I was trying to go from, you know, 25 to 35 or something. And you're like, go, go to 30 at this point instead. Wouldn't you rather crush it at 30 than get left behind at 35? And then you start thinking, well, what, what message does that send to the market? If you, if you are winning seven out of 10 times at 30, that sends to the market that you are a, a high close, high demand speaker. If you're only winning one out of 10 times at 35, that, that sends a very different message. So how have you sort of navigated the near-term versus long-term uh, uh, push and pull, that tension that exists for all of us as we're making both fee decisions and other decisions along the path? Yeah, look, supply and demand dictates your fee and a story, right? And so if you're sitting there going, should I put my fees up, but you don't have a full calendar, then the answer is probably not right? Um, two, I do think, you know, people do go through flavor of the month stuff. Like you look at the social unrest in America right now, it's driving a very particular type of demand in the speaking industry. And you might want to, I think speakers have gone from 10 to 45 grand in the last 12 months, literally. And they're not $45,000 worth of value, right? And in two years time, when that settles down and a new social thing thing or a new hot topic in business or a new, then they're going to have to go from 45 to 20. And that is not, that, that is, that's not creating the kind of scarcity. No one wants an introduction that says, oh my gosh, you won't believe we found this great speaker. She used to be 45,000 or he used to be 50 grand. Now he's only 20. We've got such a great deal. I mean, total bargain. Let me introduce you to Pete Sheehan. Like said no introducer ever. Like you want the introduce going, we were lucky to get this guy. He flew in from the moon to get this done and was so grateful to have his time. Shut up and listen. You know, like to, you, you want to maintain a little bit of that tension. With that said, couple of things when you're at the lower fee range, right? 
Number one is um, value follows price. In other words, when you're at like 2,500 and you put your fee to five, you feel like that's astronomically, like what a, what a fee, I couldn't possibly justify that. You know what, when you get booked for a $5,000 speech, you've now got twice as much capacity to prep for it as you did a $2,500 one, and you are going to feel the pressure to deliver, right? Or when you go from five to 10. So uh, there is, in those lower ranges, I would be more aggressive because I promise you, you're gonna work even harder to prep for them. Number two, if you're relying on distribution, say through agencies or whatever, if I can book a $10,000 speaker versus a $5,000 speaker, I'm make twice the money on the 10. And so there's an incentive in the channel for doing that. And three, people like buying things that are at least a little bit expensive. Like, that doesn't mean you go to 20 if you're not good. But like, I'm talking really at the lower ranges here, Josh. Uh, I'm, generally, people aren't trying to get bargain basement deals on this stuff. Generally, they expect to pay for expertise. And if you're if, if, if I get put up against you and I'm 10 and you're five, somewhere unconsciously in that buyer's mind, they're like, oh, maybe this guy's twice as good, you know, and they might negotiate me to 75, which I wouldn't do, but, you know, the, 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 but having that higher position is like a nice expensive bottle of wine. Yeah, there's no question. There's a perception of, of price and value. So if I said, hey, I've got a good car to sell you. It's a brand new BMW, but it's only $16,000. Your first question would be, what's wrong with it? It wouldn't be like, what a great value. So I, I couldn't agree more. So, hey, switching gears a little bit to the future. Um, we, we are coming out of COVID, hopefully, <laughs> sooner than later. Uh, and that that's shaken up our industry to its core. Uh, there's new delivery mechanisms. There's new demand for new topics. What do you see uh, the next 12 months of this industry looking like? What are you excited about? What are you concerned about? Yeah, I think a lot of people are asking the question, what meetings, <clears throat> let me back up. I think everyone's dying to get back in a room together. Like yesterday I was with the top 15 executives of a massive CPG company and they were just glad to be in a room together. And I'm to I'm at I had breakfast with the CEO and he was like, oh my God, I'm all zoomed out and you can't really get anything done on Zoom. And I was like, actually, that's not true. You can get a lot of stuff done in a Microsoft Teams, WebEx, Zoom environment. You just gotta know how to facilitate in that environment. And as a CEO, you, you're gonna have to figure that out because yes, you're dying to get back in a room and you're excited to do that, but I promise you, you don't need to incur the travel and time cost of always having to be in a physical room to get decisions made. So I think we're gonna have this like elastic band bit back to get together because we haven't seen each other for 20. By the way, a third of this, it's a $60 billion company, a third of them have never sat in the same room since being in the roles they're in right now. So like, there gonna be a lot of face-to-face -face meetings coming in the next, maybe in the six to 12 month range. Then I think it's gonna resettle. I think we're gonna understand what's best done face-to-face -face and what's best done virtually. And we will, I believe there will be an expansion in the available market that we can address, but it'll be really defined as to what happens in what areas. And on that topic, so, you know, and in my consulting practice, we do a lot of executive development work, not executive development, we do alignment and transformation work with executives. And we are having better results virtually than we do when we're physically in the room for a whole host of reasons around no one gets to dominate the conversation. We're able to, no one wants to be on Zoom for a whole day. So you get stuff done in three hours, you're used to doing eight. And as a result of that, decisions get made and we have tighter turnaround times and there's no flying involved. So executives are more willing to invest the time. It's been a really eye-opening experience how much you can get done in that space. So there's a little bit on the future of the industry. Um, last question for you, Peter. And again, we're grateful for your time today. What's the future for Peter Sheehan? 
Oh, man, I'm going to just uh, retire. I'm going to take a boat down the BVI's. No, you know what I'm like, Josh. I'm, I, I can't help myself. You know, I was lucky enough to sell uh, one of my businesses two years ago and put me in a really good position to, to think deeply about what I want to do next. And I'm working on an, a, a couple of interesting projects right now. One is the work that you, know, you, you and I and Seth and Ryan are doing about bringing up the next generation of speakers. There are so many brilliant people out there that I meet who belong on the platform, who have something to contribute, who have a, have a voice that needs to be heard. And I've been doing this for 21 years. I, like, I can save those people a lot of time and effort. You know? And so I'm excited about mentoring and you know, being, hosting masterminds for, for, for these guys. And to me, that's a chance to give back to an in, from an industry and a, and a, and a career that's been incredibly rewarding to me. Um, and then secondly, I'm actually working on it. I don't know if it's going to be a book or not yet, but it's definitely a new, it's the next iteration of the work I've done because, you know, we've gotten really good at accelerating the transformation of organizations, big complex ones. But in my experience, those transformations create the most enterprise value and economic value for its shareholders when that company is focused on leading their client to the future rather than building a defensive strategy, which is like takes you kind of back to the Michael Porter days. And so anyway, I don't want to get too academic about this, but um, that's I'm excited about that. I'm developing that stuff in the background right now. I'm not in a huge rush, uh, but I'm excited about both of those things. I love it. Well, the ever-evolving, ever-changing, ever-exciting to talk to Peter Sheehan. For those that want to learn more about you, where should they go online? Is it petersheehan.com? Yeah, petersheen.com. Um, follow me on uh, LinkedIn or Instagram. I'm, I'm just going to manage expectations. I'm not particularly active in social media. My my buyers aren't on Instagram. But if you follow me there, if anything interesting is coming out, you'll know about it because I'll, I'll hit it up there. So see on LinkedIn, Instagram, or if you're just interested in the work, go to petersheen.com. Well, great. On that note, thanks again. Thanks for your contribution in our industry, and thanks for your contribution today. Thanks, Josh. Good to see you, mate. Inspiring insights delivered with that captivating Aussie accent. Here are a few key takeaways that really resonated with me. Number one, Peter became great on stage by doing the reps. His exceptional stage skills developed by being on hundreds of stages, many of which were extremely unglamorous. When we see performers who make it look easy, we can be sure that they've done the reps to get there, which is encouraging for us all we too can shine with enough deliberate practice. Number two, I loved Peter's viewpoint on sustainability in the speaking business. Optimizing fee, topics, positioning, and industry relationships for a 20-year stretch instead of just a two-year sprint. He helps us realize that we're better off trading small, short-term wins for those juicy, sustainable, long-term triumphs. Number three, Peter's whole life changed from a single speech, and now he's committed to making that same impact on others. To get there, he invests heavily in himself and his craft. His meticulous approach to research ensures that he remains fresh and relevant and compelling. He is relentless in his own growth and remains a lifelong learner. And his willingness to disrupt an old version of himself to discover a new one. This is a dude who practices what he preaches. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Mic Drop. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. 
If you love the show, please share with your friends. And don't forget to give us a five-star review. For show transcripts and show notes, visit micdroppodcast.com. Mic Drop is produced and presented by eSpeakers. And a big thanks to our sponsor, Three Ring Circus. I'm your host, Josh Linkner. Thanks for listening, and here's to your Mic Drop moment. Mic Drop.